Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, Dylan Evans tells us about his utopia experiment, and then Andrew Muller on his memoir, It's Too Late to Die Young Now. Dylan Evans is an academic philosopher and journalist. He's written several popular science books and was once described in The Times as the sort of polymath who makes you wonder what you've been doing with your brain. He currently lives in Guatemala, and he's the author of The Utopia Experiment, which we're going to be talking about today. So, Dylan, welcome to Little Atoms. Thanks very much for having me. Now, the beginning of this book finds you in a psychiatric hospital, and you describe thinking about how to describe why you're there to other patients and how crazy that would sound. So by way of telling us what the book's about, can you, uh, can you summarise why you're in that hospital? So, yeah, I mean, I wanted to start off the book, uh, in a sense, with kind of the, almost the end of the story because uh, it's more about, you know, a why done it than mm-hmm. a uh, what did I do. So, um, yeah, I ended up in this psychiatric hospital in 2007 because uh, I'd set up this post-apocalyptic commune, as it were, in Scotland to imagine what life might be like if civilization had collapsed. And uh, ironically, uh, civilization didn't collapse, but I did. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's how I ended up in this psychiatric ward. So the original idea was that it would be a sort of simulation and you had a scenario. Tell us about the scenario that you wrote to uh, to attract people to the to the project. Sure. So the idea was that well, civilization, our modern global high-tech world seems very secure and solid, but you know, many civilizations in the past have collapsed and they probably seem just as <laughs> solid and secure to the people who were alive at the time. And I began to wonder, this was about 10 years ago, began to wonder what would happen, you know, if global warming and peak oil and financial crises all sort of came together and caused our modern global civilization to collapse. And I began to think, well, you know, maybe one way to find out what life would be like for the survivors would be to act it out. So I wrote this brief scenario in which I described how at the uh, you know, the first decade of the 21st century, a combination of all these pressures on global civilization caused the whole thing to collapse. And the cities imploded, most people died, but there was a few survivors who managed to sort of get out just in time. 
and they set up this mm-hmm. sort of community in the Scottish Highlands to try and survive. And this wasn't just, I guess, idle speculation on your part, although as it happens, the scenario that you write does not involve your previous work with artificial intelligence, but you did, before this happened, work in artificial intelligence and were sort of somewhat taken by the work of technologists like Bill Joy and Kurzweil and the singularity idea and things. So let's talk about that idea of technological collapse. Yeah, as you say, I was working at the cutting edge of artificial intelligence. I was working in the Bristol Robotics Laboratory. And, you know, I was a firm believer in this technological future. But there's something that seems to happen to some people that work in that area, like Bill Joy and me and a few other people. You can go two ways. You can either sort of become a complete evangelist for this technology or you can somehow flip around and begin to really worry about it and almost hope that it doesn't go in the direction that you think it's going. Mm-hmm. So Bill Joy, for example, you know, he he was the CEO of some microsystems, a pioneer in software. He wrote this article for Wired magazine around 2000 that sort of saying, well, you know, what's going on? Oh, you know, we, I might be working to create the technology that makes humanity go extinct. Mm-hmm. And uh, so he quit his job. The Unabomber as well. He was a mathematician working on, you know, advanced maths that could also feed into artificial intelligence. He quit his job and became a, a survivalist. And I think I kind of got into the same kind of uh, worries about the technology and began to think, well, maybe it would be better off if the whole thing just imploded and we went back to sort of a more primitive way of living. And beyond that, we just said where you were working in the um, in Bristol in, in artificial intelligence, beyond that, where else were you at this point? As this is going to be a story of not just the collapse of civilization, but the collapse of Dylan Evans. Right. Whereabouts, whereabouts were you at that point? So I think, you know, at this point I was, in some ways, I was, you know, very successful. I'd um, managed to, uh, you know, written a number of books. I was um, working in the cutting edge of artificial intelligence. I, you know, everything seemed on the surface to be going well for me. But I think deep down I was unhappy. I was lonely. I was beginning, I think, to go into a depression, but I didn't realise it at the time. And I think I began, instead of sort of dealing with these psychological problems that were beginning to sort of well up, I projected it all out Mm -hmm. onto the outside world and said, oh, it's, you know, uh, the reason I'm unhappy is not because I've got issues, but because the whole industrial technological system is making me unhappy. And so maybe it's making everyone unhappy. And in order for us to sort of regain our happiness that technology is robbing us of, we've got to sort of hope that technology will collapse and we can go back to living in a sort of more natural way. But that wasn't a, for yourself, a particularly a utopian prospect. I mean, there are there are a lot of people, and we'll talk about some of the people that, that come and live on the commune with you later on, but, you know, there are people for who that's an attractive proposition, isn't it? Well, yeah, and I think, uh, you know, there is this... Because, uh, I mean, that seems odd at first, because you think, OK, civilization collapses, billions of people will die. How is that mm-hmm. possibly utopian? How is that a good thing? But there is, as you say, a sort of a movement, a subculture that I call doomers, who really look forward to this um, because they see this as a sort of way of getting away from the sort of darkness of modern technology and returning to a sort of more sort of idyllic 
pre-industrial past. And I got fully sucked into this sort of way of thinking myself. And, you know, before too long, I was, you know, not just preparing for the collapse of civilization. I was actually hope, desperately hoping that it would collapse so that we could all go back to sort of living a more natural and simple life. There's one thing that's speculated on this, but how did you get from the thought, writing the scenario even, to actually the point where it starts to become a reality? So I thought I've always been interested in the in the idea that sometimes in order to really learn about many things, you, it's not enough just to speculate about it, to think about it uh, in the comfort of your armchair. But you've got to sort of do it in some way. And so, you know, I could have, yeah, I could have, say, just written a science fiction novel about how civilization collapses and how people survive. But, you know, I think, you know, you're always limited by your imagination in that when you try and just uh, write fiction. And sometimes you can only discover things by, as it were, trying to act it out in the real world. So that's why I came up with the experiment. Instead of just sort of imagining what it would be like, I'd try and act it out with a bunch of volunteers. Nonetheless, this thing is... While you're going to be getting back to, you know, getting back to basics, this thing obviously is going to take quite a bit of money to set up. Yes. Well, I think it could, needn't. I needn't have spent quite so much on it, but um, I think yeah. So I actually to fund it, I sold my house, and uh, you know, I sold it at the top of the market. That was 2006, <laughs> um, and uh, I ended up with about a hundred thousand pounds which i basically wasted <laughs> on the experiment and uh after about a year it's you know if i hadn't if i'd had ten thousand pounds i might have done the experiment just as well or just as badly <laughs> but you know I, I wouldn't have um but as it you know when you've got more money you just I, like i spent it on solar panels that were ended up you know ended up being completely pointless in scotland or buying a, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the remains of an old signal box, which was a complete waste of time as well. We could have spent, you know, half of that and just made a log cabin, you know. So there's a bit very sort of Fitzcarraldo about that that sequence with the uh, with the signal box, getting it from somebody's garden over it, to the commune. It, I mean, it was yeah. That sort of sums up the, the kind of craziness of the whole experiment. I think that and other sort of incidents like this. But I think also at the back of my mind was this idea that I wanted to be out there without a plan B. I didn't want to have a safety net. It made it more real if everything was on the line for me. I wanted to put myself in a position where, you know, there was no exit strategy. And I thought that would be a good thing. But, you know, obviously, when I realised a year into the experiment, how completely in the deep end I was, uh, it didn't seem like a good thing anymore. As my friend Angus said to me at the time, he said, you know, when he, I was sort of beginning to go into this really dark place, I said, what's wrong with me? He said, Dylan, you wanted to get outside your comfort zone. Now you're outside your comfort zone. You don't bloody like it. I'm Andy Miller, and you're listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. We'll come back to that point you just raised, because actually part of the way through the experiment, you do end up with a, somewhere you can you can bolt off to for most of the time. But then um, we'll come back to that. So let's talk about how you've how did you attract people to it? Right. So uh, when I came up with the idea for the experiment, I just put a page on my website asking for volunteers to come and join me in this experiment in post-apocalyptic living. One of the things I wanted to do was just to see what would happen. And I decided I didn't try and promote it. I just thought, well, you know, this was part of my sort of messianic complex at the time. I just thought, I don't have to do anything. The, the right people will come. Mm -hmm. If you build it, they will come, kind of thing. And so I just put this page up there and just sat, sat back. And I was just curious to see, would anybody mm -hmm. apply at all? Would anybody even find the page? But in fact, they did. And, you know, within a 
a few weeks, I was getting dozens of applications. And uh, so that part was actually quite successful in the sense that I did attract hundreds and hundreds of applicants. And uh, I was able, you know, I couldn't possibly accept them all, but um, it gave me a bunch of people to choose from. And I mean, you're, you know, you're, you're a published author, you had a website, you were in the press about it and stuff as well. So there was publicity about the project. Yes, there was. But I mean, I didn't, publicity came, as it were, uh, without me having to do anything to mm-hmm. get that. Because some people started, you know, saw the page, they shared it. Other people, you know, saw that, they shared it. Journalists then latched onto it. And that was kind of part of the fun, was seeing just would it take on a life of its own and uh, it did you know and perhaps it took on so much of a life of its own that it was very rapidly was no longer you know uh, I couldn't control it anymore. So what are you what are the sort of the basic tedious logistical steps that you have to take first of all to start this thing off? Well it ends up being a lot more tedious and a lot more complicated than you think again because i had this sort of very naive rosy idea that it would just all happen Mm -hmm. but um you know you have to figure out where people are going to live and you know they okay part of the experiment is that people have to build the accommodation but you can't just expect people to turn up with nothing so Mm -hmm. you have to provide some basic infrastructure there would be stuff there would be stuff this is the post-apocalyptic world there would be stuff to scavenge people could exactly so this is a kind of cross as it were between sort of scrap heat challenge and mm-hmm. survivor or something like that so you know i yeah we i got some there was a one of the first volunteers adam you know helped me build some yurts for the first volunteers but then you know uh the planning authority saw the yurts i had to and they said oh you, you know you can't do this you've got to apply for planning permission so i had to apply for planning permission and then someone said oh well you know someone had an accident i thought oh maybe i better get some insurance you know because so this ironically as i was sort of trying to escape from civilization I, I actually kind of ended up getting more bogged down in all the bureaucracy that i was trying to get away from but also in terms of you know the accident as, as far as you want to get away from civilization you obviously i mean you know there are still antibiotics and stuff you can't let people die well, this is it. So you end up having to make all these trade-offs, all these compromises. Uh, that's just the, because, as you say, you know, the, what, what's the alternative? You either, you know, some, so when one of the volunteers cut his hand with an axe, luckily it wasn't too serious, but, you know, we, we took him to a hospital. What's the alternative? OK, we just try and let the wound cure naturally, but maybe it becomes infected and then it maybe, you know, he... He loses his hand. What what happens? Or we cut it off. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) so you end up having to make all these compromises that is, it's part of the the world we live in, but it's also, it feels like cheating. Mm -hmm. And that makes you feel that, you know, the experiment is not really as authentic as it should be. And then you feel, oh, you know, why, why can't we just do it properly? But that's, again, you know, part of the kind of, in a sense, that's one of the interesting things about Mm -hmm. doing something like this. We haven't actually established where you did it, which obviously is sort of quite relevant to how things turn out. So how did you go about finding the location? Right, so I... um, Why didn't you do it in Cornwall? Well... (laughs) Why did even more to the point? Why didn't I do it in some nice warm country like like Mexico or something like that? I think you know. Why did I do it in the north of Scotland? You know, one of the rainiest, coldest parts of the UK. Well, partly there was this idea that you know, if climate change makes you know the whole world warm up, maybe the mm-hmm. south of England will be too warm by the time you know. So we need to sort of go 
further north. But also, I had a friend in the in the Highlands who had some land. Her brother was a farmer, and so he leased some of the land to me. And it was actually, you know, the, I liked the idea of also being in this place where the weather would be challenging, because again, it was about making things as hard as possible for myself. I wanted it to be difficult. Mm-hmm. I wanted it to be a challenge. And um, you know, I, I ended up biting off more than I could chew. But that was again, you know, I wanted it to be hard. Tell us about some of the other people then, some of the people that, that joined. There were people that stayed there for, for long periods of time, people that become central to the story, but also people come up and you know, stay for a couple of weeks or a month or something. Right, yeah. So the idea was that I wanted to have people you know, from a whole variety of backgrounds and ages. And so if I'd required everyone to be there for the whole time, you know, would have ended up with just everyone, you know, a bunch of people in their 20s. Mm-hmm. But I allowed people to come for less time. And we had a revolving door policy so people could stay for as little as two or three weeks. And, you know, when one one of them left, someone else would take their place. And that meant that we got people of all ages. The oldest person who came was a retired teacher who was in her late 60s. And we had families there with young kids. But, yeah, the people, some people became kind of core to the experiment, as you say, and they stayed for months. Probably the most um, significant of those was Adam, Mm -hmm. who was this really colourful character who uh, lived a fairly normal life but had sort of had some kind of breakdown, I assume, you know, in his his late 40s and was now a a kind of homeless traveller. He, you know, and he was dressed in a very bizarre way, and you know, I, I still have a great deal of affection for him. He was the craziest person there, apart from me, probably. You know, and he had not got on a lot of people's nerves, but uh, something about him just uh, sort of, I still find him very, very endearing. There was a uh, Agric who was um, again absolutely convinced that civilization was going to collapse. He was the sort of master of our farmland and vegetable growing so yeah he was uh, uh, also one of the key characters there uh, harmony was um, a music student from cambridge who played the flute and the guitar and kept us entertained with music there was uh, a guy called nick who was um, again a student you know there were uh, I guess those were some of the main sort of long term residents adam as you said is is the central figure really apart from yourself in this story also sort of personifies the idea that you know first of all if this thing is going to work everybody has got to you know they've got to fulfill their roles they've got to pull together he's a very solitary figure isn't he yeah so adam yeah one of the challenges you face and anyone who's lived in community whether it's a shared house at university or a commune or whatever or even just a you know a family in a a house is a sort of community as well Mm -hmm. you've got to find some way of uh, dividing up the work and people have got to be cooperative otherwise it's just not going to function so you know you can do a rotor or so you know an allocate tasks in various ways and you know most uh, communities most people knuckle down and they will agree to do this but Adam was absolutely you know refused to take any kind of orders from anyone else and um, he only took orders from the great spirit (laughs) and funnily enough the great spirit always seemed to agree with Adam (laughs) so he would always go off and do his own thing which is one of the main reasons why he annoyed everybody else so much you know he just uh, would not cooperate and and when you're faced with someone who like that there's there's very little you can do before we go into the second half tell us some tell us some good memories of it how how did it work 
Right. So the first few months, I got up to the site in summer of 2006. And it was, you know, it was because it was summer, the days were long, it was warm. It was fantastic being outside all day long, you know, when you've worked in an office, or in my case, I was in, in, in a laboratory a lot of the time, a robotics lab, but it was still indoors. And uh, there I was outdoors all day long in the uh, sunshine and chopping wood, planting crops, clearing the land, putting up yurts. And it felt fantastic. You know, I was uh, healthy, I was fit, I was enjoying myself. And, you know, I still look back on those moments with a lot of uh, affection and fondness. And that was, and then, you know, in the evening, cooking over an open fire, sitting round, having conversations, telling stories. That was, that was great. <laughs> You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Dylan Evans, and we're talking about his book, The Utopia Experiment. And Dylan, in this half time, we're gonna we're gonna get into where it all went wrong. And well, to begin with, something I hinted at in the in the first half is that part of the way through this experiment, you get involved with somebody, get into a relationship, and this means that you can spend a lot of time not on site, which I think is sort of one of the significant points where you you sort of take your eye off the off the ball a bit. Absolutely, yeah. So uh, when I started the experiment, I was single. And I'd always sort of seen that as, you know, I was going to do this as a single person. And my focus would be completely on the experiment. But uh, I started going out with someone just before I went up to Scotland and ended up uh, getting very involved, falling in love with her. And uh, then persuading her to come and join me up in Scotland and uh, everyone I was you know who was involved said that Dylan this is a bad idea you know that's gonna you're gonna have divided attention Mm -hmm. and they were absolutely right you know so I naively thought oh well she'll come and live on the experiment with with us but she had a kid that didn't really appeal to her living in a yurt with a young kid so I rented a cottage for her about a mile or two away from the experiment and then I was really split between the two because I obviously you know wanted to see her and I didn't want her to move up to Scotland and then suddenly you know never see her um, so I would go to the, see her and spend a few nights a week with her at the cottage and then I'd be feel guilty because I wasn't at the experiment uh, and I'd go back to the experiment the next day and then I'd feel guilty because I wasn't with her and uh, you know this but I think you know maybe you know the, maybe that was symptomatic of, of of something that I wanted maybe I wanted some kind of mm-hmm. um, bolt hole maybe you know I was already you know in a sense feeling not fully committed to it to you know and that's maybe it was a sort of chicken and egg thing I don't know but uh, for whatever reason, yeah, this this just ended up sort of leading to a kind of schizophrenic existence where I was sort of really, uh, you know, I'd created two little communities mm. and I wasn't fully a member of either. And so before we broke, you you mentioned, the, you know, the nice things about camping out in, in the summer in Scotland. Let's talk about the reality of living in a yurt through a Scottish winter. Right, yes. So it's one thing to live in a yurt in the summertime when it's nice and dry and warm. But, you know, as the uh, experiment wound on, we went into autumn and then winter. 
And, you know, I thought, well, yurts will still be good for the winter because we have, you know, they have a stove in the middle. That's why the Mongolian nomads uh, can live in them and survive through the Mongolian winter, which is you know, even colder than Scotland. But, you know, Scotland isn't just cold. It's also very wet. And uh, the yurts are very suited, well suited for the Mongolian winter, mm. which is very cold and dry, but not so well suited to the Scottish winter, which is very cold and wet. And so, you know, often I'd wake up, I'd go to sleep very toasty at night. You know, we'd bank up the stove with, you know, so it was really warm inside the yurt. But then also, unlike the Mongolians, we didn't, the Mongolians, the task of a Mongolian woman or wife is to keep the stove burning 24 hours a day and woe betide her if she doesn't unfortunately we didn't have any mongolian wives up there to keep the stove burning through the night so we'd go we'd drift off very warm but then you know the stove would go out we'd wake up i'd wake up three in the morning freezing cold maybe the wind would have fumbled open some of the canvas it'd be it was a rain dripping in and i'd be like uh, why on earth did I build yurts? <laughs> and at this point as well, obviously the financial situation is getting worse all the time. You're spending more and throwing more and more money into it. There must become a point where, first of all, you're realising how much you're spending, but also realising that you're in too deep, really. You may as well carry on. Well, yeah. I mean, the thing... It went, I, after you know all, nine ten months into the experiment, yeah, the money is all is even though you know as I said I had about a hundred thousand pounds to start with. I don't know how I managed to spend all that so quickly, but um, you know one of the things that if you read the history of communities and communes and the economics of these things is the sort of hidden but vital mm-hmm. you know underbelly of all of these things that many many of these experiments have failed in the past because of the simple thing of just running out of money and. You know, then I began to think for the first time, what am I going to do next? And I don't know why. I just never even, when I was, I guess I was so carried away with setting up the experiment to begin with, I hadn't even sort of thought that far ahead. I, or maybe deep down, I really did think that civilization was going to collapse and I didn't mm-hmm. need to have any money because the, the whole financial system would collapse and then by then we'd be self sufficient and I'd be kind of well set up because uh, money wouldn't be valuable even if I had it then. So, but yeah, I, as the time went on and civilization didn't look like it was going to collapse immediately. And I didn't have any money left. I was thinking, oh, my God, what have I done? <laughs> and, of course, this wouldn't necessarily have been apparent to you at the time. But with hindsight, at what point does your depression and the sort of falling apart of the community become sort of the same thing, basically, entwined? Well, it was very it was very um, abrupt, really, I think. You know, I as I say, when I went up to Scotland in summer 2006, I was sort of on a roll. I was I was sort of almost manic, you know, I was carried away by this massive energy. And that fueled me for, you know, nine or 10 months. And but then suddenly that energy ran out. Um, it was a combination of things. Obviously, it was just I got to the end of the end, but I wasn't eating properly. You know, it's hard to keep all you know eat properly when you're just sort of feeding yourself and uh, from what you can grow. And literally, you know, it was one from almost one day to the next, or certainly one week to the next. I went from being this sort of you know absolutely you know sort of manic founder of this community to to sort of waking up in the dead of night, shivering and flooded with anxiety and terrified about what I what was going to come next and what the hell had I done with my life and I began to go into a really dark place I don't think the community really fell apart um 
I think it was just me. I, mm -hmm. I think most of the, if not all the other volunteers, were still having a great time. You know, but they, you know, they all had homes to go back to. Uh, I didn't. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I was all in, and so um, but there was this sort of very curious sort of thing that they were faced with. Was the the founder of the community, the one who set it up, doesn't really believe in it anymore, and is sort of that sort of, you know, they're thinking what what's gone wrong with the guy? He's sort of suddenly he's turned into a ghost. And I mean, again, looking back on that with hindsight, you were, you know, the founder sounds like quite a benign thing, but in some ways, you, you're a bit cult leadery in, in a bit. You know, you you got people to come to this thing. You I mean you quite happily admit in the book that you you know you always saw them as as lab rats, as people to literally conduct an experiment on. It's called the Utopia Experiment. It was an experiment, right? Yeah, and uh, I was, um, you know, I think if I'd been a, a bit better at being a cult leader. It, maybe it wouldn't have gone so badly you know the problem was that i i kind of really realized that i wasn't actually a very good cult leader the point of being a cult leader is that you have to have this unshakable belief in yourself and i did for the first nine or ten months but then i lost that belief in myself so you know in addition to falling apart myself i felt there was this extra guilt of thinking i've got all these people up here to follow me and join this community that i founded and they expect me to be a you know charismatic leader, or I thought they expected mm -hmm. me to be, and suddenly I wasn't. Suddenly I was a pathetic, miserable idiot, and uh, I, I felt you know that I'd completely left let them down. And suddenly we're all, they were all stranded up there, and the, the guy who sort of got them all to come up there is 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 a gibbering mess. <laughs> surely that, I mean that's a that's a good thing to learn about yourself, right? That you don't have the makings of a charismatic cult leader. I, I think it is a on in yeah, on balance it's better to be the kind of person that isn't a cult leader, but it was a great disappointment to me at the time. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I did sort of, I guess, you know, in the back of my mind I think I did actually want to be some kind of guru, some, you know, that and, and they would be my followers. They would be you know, and I, 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 you know, I was. It was a great uh, disappointment to find that I actually I didn't have what it takes to be a cult leader. As you say, it's probably a better thing, you know, in the long run. But at the time, I felt, oh dear. <laughs> I'm Emma Jane Unsworth. Go and read some great new journalism and explore the interview archive at littleatoms.com. During the months you were up there, you went to visit some other similar communities and ones that were successful. Yeah. So why do some work and some don't? Ah, that's a, it's a good question. I, I think, um, well, they probably have a, more of a plan. <laughs> that's a, they probably uh, have a, a, especially some kind of financial plan mm -hmm. in, in terms of how they're going to get an income and sustain the whole thing economically. Uh, they probably have a, taken more time to acquire the necessary skills and they are more aware of maybe how difficult it is and they haven't sort of got this you know i had this i i you know i was i was just arrogant you know i was cocksure i thought i could go anywhere do anything and i'd do it better than everyone else and you know one of the things that you know i learned and it was quite humbling was that I, you know, it's it's much more difficult than that. And, um, you know, I take my hat off to all the people who've running communities and have made them last for years because it is a very hard thing to do. And, um, you know, I, I learned my lesson. 
And I mean, a lot of these communities, not the ones that you that you actually do talk about going and visiting, a lot of these type of communities that do last and that last for a long time tend to be probably religious. You know, they're built around. There's a, there's a more compelling central idea to them as well as just being self-sufficient. Absolutely, yes. I think this is actually one of the key secrets to success for many communities is to have some religious or or spiritual kind of uh, belief system. Or a charismatic cult leader. Yeah, or or both. (laughs) I mean, Findhorn, for example, works partly because they do have this belief in the spiritual purpose for Mm -hmm. it. But, you know, I was, you know, I'm an atheist and I was always, I was very clear from the beginning that this was not going to be a religious experiment. And, you know, it it may be that that was actually, you know, uh, I I hate to admit it, but it might, you know, because I am still an atheist, but, you know, it may be that atheists are not very good at building communities mm. because, you know, uh, th- we kind of almost do need a kind of irrational belief in something higher than ourselves in order to to, to get people to kind of pull together through the most difficult times. You should have listened to the great spirit. I should have done. Well, Adam was obviously, you know, better cut out for that than, than I was. But uh, you ha- the other thing is everyone else has to believe in it as well. And uh, <laughs> he wasn't very good at persuading. Yeah, it's no good if only one of you believes in it. No. So... We haven't mentioned this. I mean, this all took place roughly a decade ago, didn't right. it? What happened to the other members of the community? And I know you, you haven't seen many of them, but I mean, have you seen any? Yeah. So, uh, well, I, uh, you know, as as we were saying, as we started off the conversation, you know, I, I ended up being sectioned and and uh, going, you know, being you know, detained for my own uh, safety and, and sent to a mental hospital for a month. Mm. And uh, when I, uh, while I was in the hospital, it was actually the sanest place I'd been for about a year, <laughs> to be honest. Um, but uh, when I was in the hospital, I thought, right, well, you know, I really have touched rock bottom now. When I get out, I'm going to go back to the experiment and tell everyone that it's over and mm-hmm. it's time to go home. And I thought, you know, naively that they would all, you know, agree and they would all go home. There might be a few tears shed, but they would all accept that. But, um, you know, I, I'd completely failed to foresee the possibility that, you know, I, I, which is what actually happened. I went back, uh, I got out of hospital, went back to the Utopia experiment, told them that it was all over and it was time to go. And they just said, um, no, we're not going. We like it here. So, uh, you know, I was kind of a bit flummoxed by that, for, uh, and I, I just didn't know what to do. Eventually, after a few weeks, I said, well, look, I can't make you guys go, so uh, I'm going. So I, I said, in a sense, you know, that was, I realised it wasn't my experiment anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, it was their experiment now, and that kind of made it easier for me to leave, because if it was m- still my baby, I couldn't have maybe abandoned it but now I realized it wasn't my baby anymore it was really theirs so that made it kind of slightly easier for me to leave and um, some of them are still there you know they they don't I don't think there's anyone who lives full-time permanently on the site anymore but a number of people live in the vicinity and regularly go there spend you know a few hours a day cultivating a vegetable garden some people uh, have you know gone back to their regular houses and jobs in other parts of the country, but they go back to the site for a, a few weeks or months each year, and uh, so it does have a kind of life of its own. And they renamed it the Phoenix Experiment because it had sort of risen from the ashes of the Utopia Experiment. And you know that's that's good. So in a sense, well, you know, it created something 
good for other people, even if it wasn't such a great experience for me. And you decided to write a book about it, so that must have been a, you know, an, an interesting experience, trawling up those memories. Well, yeah, I mean, I wanted to write about it, you know, from the beginning, but uh, when I came... Uh, when I left the Scotland and came back down to England, you know, I tried to start writing about it, but I, I couldn't. You know, each time I tried, it was just too painful. And when I did write about it, I wasn't really totally honest with myself because I tried to put a positive spin on it. I was too ashamed to tell what the, you know, what had actually happened because it was such a major failure on my part. I felt like I was, you know, it was. I'd gone off with this big fanfare, telling everyone, "Look, I'm going to create this utopia," and it had all come crashing down. So, so yeah, it wasn't until you know about two, a couple of years ago that I finally kind of thought well look I, I'm ready to, to write about this now and, and uh, writing about it was very cathartic it did sort of help me to in a sense reach some kind of closure about it and process what had happened um, and I think that was actually a vital part of the whole experience was actually writing about it and, and telling the story. And so where where is Dylan Evans now? So I mentioned that you you live in Guatemala. So right. That's one thing, but how are you? So I yeah I think uh, I'm I'm I feel you know very happy and very and sort of I think writing the book actually you know helps me to put most of the ghosts to rest. I wouldn't say all of them. I'm still got haunted by a few demons. Uh, probably a good thing. You know I don't think you can write if you have no demons at all. But um, yeah, I think it's helped me to uh, you know f- get to a, a place where I'm a lot more sort of uh, accepting of myself and and all the you know the the bad and the good and and so yeah I I'm, I now live in Guatemala and uh, in a sense I'm living on a ranch in in the highlands in Guatemala which is kind of weirdly like what I was doing in the utopia experiment so it wasn't planned like that but I have ended up almost doing a kind of utopia 2.0 uh, but the you know the two big differences is one it's hot. <laughs> and two, it's just me on my own there. So uh, I think those make a, those sort of you know actually make all the difference to me and mean that I'm a lot happier now. That's a good point for us to finish. So I've been talking to Dylan Evans, and we've been talking about his book, The Utopia Experiment, which is out now currently in hardback from Picador, but it's out in paperback in September. So Dylan, thank you very much for taking the time to tell me about it. Thank you. Thanks very much. Christopher Bolin. Check out the growing Little Adams media empire at littleadams.com. Andrew Muller is a contributing editor at Monocle and broadcasts regularly on its radio arm, Monocle 24. He also writes for The Guardian, Uncut, New Humanist and Bluffers, among other titles, and has reported for more than 80 countries. He's previously the author of Rock and Hard Places, and I Wouldn't Start From Here, which we've discussed on a previous Little Atoms, and he was partially responsible, in cahoots with Luke Haynes and Cathal Coughlin, for the acclaimed 2012 music historiography The North Sea Scrolls. His country band, The Blazing Zoos, will release their second album in 2015, and his latest book, Book, which we're going to talk about today is a memoir it's too late to die young now misadventures in rock and roll so andrew welcome back That's thank fun. you happy to be back 
Um, so yeah, this is, a, this is a memoir of your life as a rock journalist. And I say that very insistently. We've talked in the past about your other proper journalism, I say pointedly. So, yeah, I don't know if I'd go so far as to call it proper journalism, but, but, but yes, but thank you for the adjective. But you still claim that the Subriquet rock journalist quite proudly, don't you? Um, I do. Uh, it, it's, it's what I started out doing professionally and it's what I first it's, it was my first real stirring of wanting to be anything other than the the standard things of wanting to bat number five for Australia play centre half forward for Geelong or, or fly fighter planes for the Australian Air Force I, I started reading Melody Maker the British rock paper in the late 80s and decided that that was what I wanted to do uh, but before that I had already started writing more or less by accident for the street press in Sydney. So, yeah, the, the, the book is it's mostly a chronicle of ages about 18 to about 28, which for me would have been late 80s to mid 90s. Well, let's talk about before 18, first of all. So, early years in Australia. How did you first get into music, Andrew? Late, actually. Properly into music quite late on. I went to a lot of different schools because my father was a soldier and at most of them I don't recall music being a massively big deal. I maybe wasn't in any one place long enough to become attuned to what the particular subcultures were. Uh, I think like most teenagers in the early to mid 80s I think I quite liked Midnight Oil um, and Australian rock music of that sort but this is most Australian teenagers isn't it? most Australian teenagers yes um, but in the, in the my last school I went to Mossman High School in Sydney an absolutely excellent uh, state high school which just happened to be the one up the road from the base we were living on uh, did have a kind of culture in which um, alternative music was discussed and traded and swapped around and, and very much enjoyed it. And, and around the same time, I became aware of uh, the Sydney radio station Triple J FM, which was a branch of the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, state broadcaster. And I guess it, did, it, it performed a role not dissimilar to what Radio 6 does now mm-hmm. in Britain. Um, so yeah, between Triple J and my school friends, then yeah, that kind of opened music up to me. And and though I know and I admit in the book that everybody thinks that the part of their life when they first properly got into music was the absolute golden age against which all others must be measured, that much admitted, there was definitely something going on in Australian alternative circles in the late 80s. You could see mm-hmm. a genuinely great act playing at the pub up the street most weeks you, you could go up the, you could go to the Mossman Hotel a 20 minute walk from my house on a Friday night and see Ed Cooper or the Go-Betweens or the Triffords or Paul Kelly mm-hmm. or any one of dozens of others uh, all of which I still think would stand comparison How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. 
There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Anybody, anywhere. And how much of that was uh, a sort of function of you being so far away as well without wanting to make it sound like, you know, this was... The Victorian times and the foreign press turned up on a tea clipper every three months or something. It was a lot more difficult to get stuff. Oh, the, the foreign press almost literally did turn up on a tea clipper three months late. When I bought Melody Maker by accident uh, for the first time during my lunch break when I was working at a record shop in Crow's Nest uh, in Sydney. Um, and it was a three-month-old copy. It had Gay Bikers on Acid on the cover. This would have been in 1988, I think. So, yeah, you, you basically, if you wanted to read the, the British music press, you had two options. You could buy them three months old when they arrived off the ship. Mm-hmm. Uh, or there were a couple of shops in Sydney which did get air freight copies which arrived in Sydney about a week after publication in London, but which were ruinously expensive. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, so was buying imported records. Yeah. Um, absolute madness. But it, it did end up in this bizarre circumstance in which if once you started getting the air-freighted music magazines, you could literally spend three months imagining what this band you'd been reading about would sound like before you finally got their, your hands on their actual recorded output. Extraordinary. So tell us more about the, the Australian scene then. So when you first... Well, I don't know, before we get on to that, let's talk about how you first, how you first started writing. It was, it was mostly... I'd started being interested in the idea of writing at that last school, at Mossman High School, which was an exceptionally encouraging um, environment. Uh, it was a, just a genuinely great school, massive stroke of luck to get planted there. And I'd always enjoyed writing things and writing about things. I was one of those peculiar students used to enjoy writing essays and I'd always read a lot we'd always had a a house full of books but it was at that school where you know teachers did start to say things like you know you could this is something you could think about pursuing Mm -hmm. once you leave these halls so there was that and the thing that really started off was I did start I had started reading a newspaper called On the Street which was a free weekly magazine which mostly listed gigs in and around Sydney but which also carried reviews and features uh, and I suspect I may have been at home fulminating about what seemed to me a certain lack of editorial standards. And my mother, who was always a very practically-minded, can-do person, said, well, if you think you can do any better, why not give it a crack? Uh, so I did. Um, so basically, we, maternal goading uh, was basically what started me off. And you took in the book about the first time you saw your work in print in On the Street. Yeah, I think for anybody who ends up writing for a living and anybody who arrived at that point having been in love with the idea of writing for a living, the first time you see your name in print, it's um, 
yeah, it's 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 no small change. I, I remember the moment with somewhat embarrassing clarity, which is why I do talk about it. I think at some length uh, in the book. But I think everybody who's ever written knows that feeling. It's, um, I mean, that said, in the modern environment where basically anybody with a telephone can sort of, you know publish an in inverted commas something and sort of announce their case to the world. The edge may have come off it a little bit, but yeah, that feeling, and there's two particular examples I remember, both of which I mentioned in the book. Seeing my name in On the Street for the first time, which was a review of Edgar, Ed Cooper and The Yard Goes On Forever at the Mossman Hotel, and seeing my name in Melody Maker for the first time. Both events which happened about a block apart in the same part of, of downtown Sydney, mm-hmm. um, and both of which... Uh, still rank, possibly rather tragically, as two of the the biggest and most intense compressed thrills I think I've ever had. Okay, so let's, as I said, I want to talk about the, that Australian music scene at that time, but sort of through the prism of you starting to write about music, going to those gigs and reviewing them. Yeah, it was. We- I mean, it's, it's weirder in retrospect because. As I do also, I think, admit quite freely in the book, I had absolutely no idea what I was doing at all. I I was 18 when I started writing about music, which in some respect is a good age to start writing about music, because obviously you're incredibly engaged with it. It's, It's the stuff of life itself. The downside is that at 18 you're probably not going to be terrifically good at the actual writing and reporting, which mm-hmm. you know, which I wasn't at all. This is, as anybody who remembers any of it will be happy to agree, this is not false modesty on my part. The hardest thing about writing this book was having to go through all the scrapbooks and get confronted with this appalling drivel mm-hmm. um, that I wrote for years. It takes a long time to get any good at writing. It took me a long time anyway. So there was that, but I was obviously blissfully unaware of this at the time. Um, well, and also, in those days, you're the only person that has that scrapbook, right? I mean, you, you clearly don't have that passion oh, nowadays. No, you don't. And, and I, I, I do definitely say this in the book, that I, I cannot overstate my gratitude for the, the non-existence of the internet at that point, because I, I've seen it happen a few times in the last few years where some poor kid's written something you know, ill-advised or ill-thought or just the kind of thing you write when you're young mm-hmm. and got completely monstered for it online and yeah every single time that happens I I, I, have I participated possibly once or twice but nonetheless there's there's always that feeling of like oh my god Mm -hmm. damn it for the grace of um and and it would be crushing it would be you know even at a point at which I'm 46 years old and I've been doing this my entire adult life you still don't like sort of people telling you you're an idiot and you're mm-hmm. no good at what you're doing but by the time hopefully you're 46 years old and you've been doing something your entire life you acquire a certainly or a reasonably thick skin and the, and the requisite confidence to sort of wave it off but yeah that, that would have been absolutely crushing although again this is a bit of a circular argument you could end up saying that given the absolute absence of quality in everything I was writing, I deserved to be crushed. But nonetheless, it was what it was, and I was in the position I was in. And that obviously meant... It meant I could go and see a lot of bands for free. It meant I got a lot of records for free, which, again, at the time was a pretty big deal. Um, And it meant I was able to... I was able to sort of begin the always... Well, it, 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 gave, it gave me the ability to do embark on the always weird thing of actually, you know, meeting one's heroes, which is which is a, a strange thing to do. At least it's a strange thing to do as long as you insist on regarding them as heroes. Mm-hmm. Once you stop doing that, then it's not a strange thing to do at all. But yeah, at, at the time it was really, really weird. You end up being, you know... Again, you, it seems retrospectively incredible that these things were allowed to happen. But yes, like, you know, you're 19 years old, go and interview Elvis Costello. And, you know, but that sort of thing used to happen on a more or less weekly basis. Mm-hmm. 
I'm Caitlin Doty. You're listening to Resonance FM, and this is Little Adams, a radio show about ideas and culture. This happens after you, you already start writing for the Melody Maker from Australia, which we'll get onto in a bit. But I wanted to talk about how you sort of learn to write. And there's a period of time before you come to England where you work for a tabloid. Uh, yeah, that particular instance has, or that particular incident has really nothing to do with being a rock journalist. But I was determined to put it in because it, it's a magazine called The Picture. It may still exist, I don't know. Um, it, it, is, it is inexcusable, frankly. It was a, a weekly supermarket tabloid, possibly most analogous in this country to something like the Daily Sport uh, in its heyday consisted largely pictures of not overclad young women and the the spaces between those were filled up with news stories which frankly we we just made up and and, and it it was so much fun Uh, it it really really was it was just I I worked there for three months and I was in tears of laughter for almost all of it it was just the most immense hoot the other writers on the features desk uh, at the picture went on to enjoy extremely distinguished careers as, as, as proper proper journalists um, you know, win- winners of the Walkley Award, the Australian equivalent of the Pulitzer, some very proper people worked, mm-hmm. at, worked at the picture. It was such good fun. But I, I will say, I, I do think working on a tabloid early on is a great thing for any writer to do because it does discipline you a lot. It teaches you a lot about structure, about mm-hmm. how to, be- you know, where the beginning, middle, and end of a story are. And that's that's really important. It, it knocks a lot of the bullshit out of your writing really, really quickly, which is good because I mean, obviously, when you're working for other people later, you can you can spoon all the bullshit back in. But it, it's very, very good to have that process of just having what you've done taken apart and put back together. And even though what you're writing or what I was writing at the time was was ridiculous because it was all entirely invented and almost always in absolutely dubious taste, um, the mechanics of that, of how to communicate this obviously writable mm-hmm. story, were, were incredibly useful. Uh, it's it's um, it, it really drilled into me the idea of beginning, middle, end. What's your actual point here? Where are we going with this? So you become a, I guess, sort of Sydney correspondent for the Melody Maker, first of all. So tell me how that came about. By a, a, the combination of... A, it came about through a, a combination, really, of persistence and blind luck. I'd started reading Melody Maker, and when I say reading it, I'd become mildly obsessed with it and decided that this was you know, what I wanted to do. So I sent them a few reviews of bands that had played in Sydney that I thought they might be interested in. Uh, And when I say sent, and for the amusement of your your younger listeners, I will say I had typed up these reviews on a typewriter and folded the paper into an envelope and posted it uh, to Melody Maker. I mean, yeah, extraordinary. Um, The first of these arrived on the watch of then-reviews editor Paul Mather, who ignored all of them, I suspect quite rightly. Um, I then noticed... I noticed, because I read everything in Melody Maker, that the reviews editor had changed. Paul Mather had left the job and been replaced by someone or something called Everett True. So I thought, well, you know, I'll I'll give it another crack. So I I sent in a review of a band from New Zealand called Straightjacket Fitz, who I'd seen play at the Lansdowne Hotel, uh, not far from where I was living at the time in Sydney. I thought, you know, they they were quite well regarded. They were on Flying Nun, the sort of very well-known New Zealand indie label, which had a bit of a cult following in Britain, Etc. 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 So I sent this review off into wherever these things get sent to. Uh, the two things I didn't know were one that Everett True was absolutely obsessed with Flying Nun Records. I did not know this. I also did not know that in the interregnum between me 
writing this review and sending it. He had written the singles for Melody Maker, reviewed the sing- that week's singles and made Straightjacket fit single of the week. And I rather suspect, as a consequence, had been subject to a measure of mockery from his, his colleagues about, you know, Everett, who are these people? You know, you've made them up, haven't you? They do. I mean, come on. So by way of shoring up his position, this, this unsolicited review arrives from the colonies uh, agreeing that Straightjacket fits are a very fine thing indeed. Uh, and so I think basically in order to shore up his own position, he, he wanged it into the paper. Uh, and that was the beginning of my association with Melody Maker. I didn't hear anything from them. Uh, I sent a few more things in, which they printed. Uh, and then one day, yeah, Everett rang me up at my house in, in Sydney and said, um, you know, this is fine, keep it coming. And by the way, we, 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 you know, we do have every intention of paying you for this. How, how do we... How do we actually do that? Uh, and that and that was how it began. Um, yeah, p- persistence and an immense stroke of fortune. I mean, really, bless ET. But it, it can still happen. You can you can wake screaming in the night at four o'clock in the morning, thinking that you're basically your entire and very very blessed adult existence has hinged on a whim had one afternoon by Everett True at his desk in King's Reach Tower in 1989. Yeah, I have no idea which other way that particular fork in the road goes mm-hmm. but I suspect it would have been a lot less fun. How does that work then? So you're you're over in Australia and you're writing for Melody Baker, you're reviewing stuff that's obviously going on locally, not just Australian scene but international bands that are obviously coming yeah. through Australia and playing. But like you're still living at home at this point. Uh, I, by the time I was working for Melody Maker I think I wasn't living at home anymore. It was around about that time but there, were, there was a period where I was interviewing international artists for On The Street, mostly on the phone, where I was living at home. Yeah, this is what I wanted to get to, so when your, when your, your mother was taking answer phone messages for you. Yeah, well, we didn't, we, well, again, this does seem an awful lot longer ago than 1988. We didn't own an answering machine. Obviously, setting up telephone interviews was fraught with miscommunications because it wasn't like you could send somebody an email. Mm-hmm. You had to ring somebody in Los Angeles and leave a message or London. or, And so people would phone at all hours having got something wrong. So, you know, you would end up in positions where, like, yeah, your dad gets woken up at four o'clock in the morning by Patricia Morrison from the Sisters of Mercy. Or, as I mentioned in the book, your mother ends up striking up quite a rapport with Dwight Yoakam because we never quite get the time right and I'm, and I'm not there. Uh, it was it was in retrospect extremely strange that yeah you you would come home from you know having been out and find that your mum's list of you know left a list of people who called while you were at a barbecue or whatever and among you know sort of two or three of your friends like you know, Jam Master Jay from Run DMC we'll, we'll call back later um, but yeah you can you, you can you can get used to pretty much anything. When was the decision made to actually come over to London? Uh, the decision was made pretty much for me, really. Uh, my, my then girlfriend was very keen on going travelling, and I didn't have anything against that idea. So I decided I'd go along with that, but obviously with the idea that I had hopefully a foot in the door at Melody Maker and that they weren't just interested in, in me because of my position in mm-hmm. Sydney. And so I thought, well, yeah, OK, let's, let's, let's do that and give it a try and see how far we get.
You're listening to Little Atoms, I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Andrew Muller and we're talking about his memoir, It's Too Late to Die Young Now. And so Andrew, we left you at the end of the first half, just arrived in London. So tell us about your first steps into the Melody Makers offices. Embarrassing to relate, I think they may literally have been on the first day I arrived in London. You know, none of this Tower of London or Buckingham Palace or Westminster Abbey no, I, I went to Melody Maker pretty much as soon as the, the jet lag would permit me. Absolutely overawed. But for all that, you know, for all that media environments can be not necessarily the most hospitable of places, yeah, everybody just couldn't have been nicer, really. There were, you know, the, the sort of expected amount of jibes about my convict ancestry and so forth, but that's that's fine. And... Yeah, uh, it, just from the off, I, I felt uh, pretty much instantly at home. It was, again, it's, it, it's, the book does mention this. It is something that I think many, if not most, magazines and newspapers now miss because it's perfectly possible to file, copy and receive assignments without ever actually interacting mm-hmm. with people at all. Whereas pre-internet, the only way you could actually engage at all or make a living from a magazine was to go down there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there were always people there, uh, which does foster a real... Uh, esprit de corps slash gang culture, which which Melody Maker certainly had, and which was reflected in its pages. And, and, I, and also, you would everyone would turn up when there wasn't actually work. To do, oh, so. and people would turn up when there wasn't work to do because we we were basically um, the kind of people who didn't really have anything much else to do mm-hmm. with our days. Uh, so yeah, it it was as I, I still think uh, journalism should be a, a refuge for the otherwise unemployable, and I, I certainly don't exclude myself from that description. Uh, it was it, yeah it. it it was terrific fun, a cast of characters that you cannot imagine having been paid to do anything else by anybody else other than perhaps to go away, but, mm-hmm. it, it, but, it, it, but it worked, and I, I think that, is, uh, that was the reason for the success the magazine still enjoyed, was that once that gang mentality was communicated to the pages, in a way that you still see, I think, in, in successful titles like Private Eye or Viz, mm-hmm. that it's understood that you know, for any new reader, for the first six issues, they're not going to understand the half of what's going on. Yeah. I mean, I remember when I started reading Private Eye, and you think, why is everything continued on page 94? Mm-hmm. Why is discussing Uganda funny? But once you start to get attuned to the jokes, you're then you're part of the club, and you don't want to miss anything, obviously. And I think that was a... The music press had an obvious advantage in fostering that kind of uh, camaraderie among staff and readers alike. And again, that would be something that you just wouldn't... I mean, especially on the internet, really, you just wouldn't have the time or the you know the space to foster that sort of commitment from the readers. No, and there was, there was also something different about the fact that it wasn't always on. There was just once a week, there it is. Yeah. This is this is the fruit of our deliberations. Here's 64 or 72 pages of whatever it is we've come up with. Take this away. Think about what you've learned. We'll be with you again next Tuesday. Mm-hmm. I, I think that that's... A, I mean, there's no... I, I think there's very, very little getting that back, but it's a definitely a different sort of engagement. The difference of engagement between that and an online publication is easily the same as the difference in intensity of engagement you have between limitless universe of, of music that comes straight out of your laptop for nothing mm-hmm. and records that you actually had to save up for, go to a shop, buy, take home and look after. We'll come back to that. Obviously, with hindsight as well, um, you arrive at the Melody Maker really at the last sort of golden age of weekly music journalism. Uh, yeah, it, it turned out to be a, a last and 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 quite voluble hurrah. I mean, by by nineteen ninety, 
the Melody Maker and ME and Sounds, which still existed, were not selling anything like what they had at their mid to late 70s peaks, when they were selling hundreds of thousands of copies a week. I mean, extraordinary numbers in retrospect. But I think I'm right in saying around 1990, I think the NME was still doing a solid 100,000-ish, I think. And I think Melody Maker in a good week was doing 65 to 70-ish. I could be wrong about those. But, you know, certainly by today's standards, not too shabby. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, 1990 was the beginning of a decade in which you saw in very rapid succession uh, grunge happen in a melody. Well, 1990 Manchester is still a huge, huge thing. Stone Roses, Happy Mondays, Charlatans, etc., mm-hmm. etc. Followed fairly swiftly after that by grunge, which Melody Maker, in the, in the shape of Everett True, was really the first to latch on to. Melody Maker was the first magazine in the world to put Mudhoney, Nirvana, Soundgarden on the cover. Mm-hmm. And then that was obviously followed, if not indeed answered, by Britpop. And this was the last time as well at which I think there was a significant generation gap at which we, by which I mean the alternative music press, had all of this pretty much to ourselves before everybody else noticed it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I can still remember, and I mentioned in the book, being at home one night watching the news when a very confused-looking BBC newsreader was sort of trying to understand why he was being asked to read out reports from Seattle of a body being found at the house of somebody called Kurt Cobain. Um, and just in the few days after that, the broadsheet newspapers missing it completely, just mm-hmm. didn't, didn't get it, did not understand that something actually fairly important had happened. And the early days of Britpop was a bit like that, but then largely due to the... I think once the tabloid press and broadsheet press as well, and in fact all the media realised that the Oasis versus Blur circus was just a, a great, great story, then it all did get rather taken away from us. But nonetheless, we were still at the centre of it, and we still did have... Uh, a certain claim on it because mostly the musicians would rather talk to us than the tabloids for fairly obvious reasons. Um, and so we did, we did definitely have a, ring, a ringside seat for that. And so what was that, what was that world like? What was it like to work in that office with those people? Uh, it was enormously good fun, uh, mostly. It was, it was a period at which you could, you could make some sort of living by being a music journalist. You weren't going to get rich, but it was... It was doable, and living in London in the mid-90s was a much more uh, affordable proposition than obviously living in London is 20 years later. So it was a... a thor- you, you can make a reasonable living, but it was the last period in well, which record companies were making lots of money, and with the insane hubris that usually attends people making lots of money and doing really well, no-one thinks the good times are going to end. Mm-hmm. So just you know, there was always money for, to fly journalists around the world to write tour stories about bands and when you did that you'd get to stay in really nice hotels and all the bills were paid and yeah it, it was it was enormously good fun I mean in retrospect just idiotic beyond comprehension the things that used to go on people getting flown to New York and back in you know in one evening to write a 300 word review of some you know hopeless group playing at CBGB's or in a, a more grotesque case mentioned in the book the chartering of an entire aeroplane uh, to take a bunch of journalists to Morocco to watch Def Leppard play in a cave mm-hmm. for some reason. And that sort of thing used to go on an awful lot. Uh, and it, it was, you know, enormously good fun. And then it was, it was, it was strange and quite melancholy going, going back through the back issues to put the book together. And around 1996, 97, 
you notice Melody Maker starts to run these slightly confused sounding stories about something called the internet and what that's going to mean for music and yeah, a, 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 a line I'm sure appears in the book somewhere in, in retrospect it, it, we, it, it seems a bit like the, the dinosaurs failing to notice that that star in the sky was getting bigger and brighter every day well, I mean, there's two obvious things that change. I'm sure there's more, but the writing, obviously, journalism changes because of the internet. But obviously, music, not just consumption, but you know, just the availability of it changes as well. So, yeah, let's talk about the, the time when you first, when the internet did start to come in and change things. Well, I was I'm a very very late adopter in most technologies. I I didn't own a mobile phone until about 2006. I don't think I actually sent an email until about 2000. It takes me a while. I'm a bit behind on, on these things. It has. I can see that it's changed my own relationship and how I listen to music. So I don't know if it's different for people who've never known anything else. But because when I wrote for On The Street in Sydney, especially, I used to get sent a lot of free records. When I say a lot, I mean, I would, it, it, when there was a point at which I was a 20-year-old who maybe owned, I don't know, 100 albums? And that obviously, you know, this this was this was considered a thing. Mm-hmm. This was considered, you know, quite extraordinary. So I can't imagine that. That's like nearly a hundred albums. How many songs? That's like nearly a thousand. You know, a thousand different songs you have to choose from at any one time. Amazing. And it, and it, it has changed definitely when when something's just there. There's no. You don't have to do that thing of looking through record shops for weeks trying to find something. It's obviously infinitely more convenient, mm-hmm. infinitely more convenient, obviously much cheaper. Um, and again, it now just seems ridiculous that it was considered reasonable to spend you know, an actually measurable proportion of your, your weekly wage on you know, 10 songs. Uh, amazing. Um, but you know, I, I notice that now you, there's just all this stuff. You, you listen to a song and you think, yeah, that's nice. You never listen to it again. Whereas before, if you only had, even at the outside, a few dozen albums, mm-hmm. you listen to those records dozens and dozens and dozens of times. And I do wonder now whether people two, three generations of music fan behind me will ever form attachments that intense to particular records and particular songs. That may or may not be a good thing, but it's certainly a thing because there just isn't the time. I mean, I was thinking about this just uh, earlier today, updating my iTunes library on my iPod, there's nearly 20,000 songs on there. And there are presumably 20,000 songs I really like. Mm-hmm. But you know, I'm 46 years old. There's already songs on that iPod I will never live long enough to listen to again. And, and some of those are songs I really, really like, mm-hmm. and I'll never hear them again. There isn't time. Uh, so I do think that must change people's relationship with music. You would be much better off putting this question to somebody at least 20 years younger than me but I do wonder because there's always there's always the temptation of the other thing it's like you back when you could afford to buy one album a week mm-hmm. if you were incredibly lucky it's just like right I've got a new record I am going to listen to the shit out of this and you would um, even if you had as I was many times sort of persuaded by some gushing melody maker cover story to go out and spend enormous amounts of money on an imported album on unwrapping, placing on my turntable, applying needle to plastic, turned out to be absolutely awful. But then you would then go, no, 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 this has cost a lot of money, I'll find something in this, I will. So you sit there listening to, you know, Skinny Puppy or Front 242 or whatever, eight times uh, in a row. I mean no slight upon Skinny Puppy or Front 242, it's just just not for me. Um, But you would just sit there and go, no, 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 it can't be, it must be good. Nerdy Maker wouldn't have put it on the cover otherwise. 
But yeah, there wasn't a choice. I mean, what else are you going to be doing? There isn't <clears> this other limitless universe you can just think, well, I'll dispose of that and try something else instead. I may be wrong about this. People's brains may have been recalibrated so you can now form attachments that intense by a fleeting encounter with something on Spotify. Um, I rather doubt it, but I, I don't know. But I do find myself... You, know, you, do, you, you sit there with your iPod flicking from song to song. And there's, there's a great line in uh, Retromania by my former Melody Maker colleague, Simon Reynolds. Mm-hmm. He, he says he does wonder how far you are from the point at which it will become normal to just sit you know, on a train or a bus with your iPod without even any headphones mm-hmm. and just you know, flicking and just enjoying the kind of rush of emotions and associations you get from just seeing the title. There are probably already people doing this, I suspect. I'm Selina Cotton. You're listening to Resonance FM, and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. And the other thing, you know, I was exactly the sort of person that was consuming the magazine, the Melody Maker and the Enemy, when you were writing for them. Well, thank you. And would, <laughs> and would you know, go out and buy some terrible, you know, cart of the Unstoppable Sex Machine rubbish or something, because... I was told to by the enemy, or the, well, it would have been the enemy. It would not have the certainly been the enemy telling you to buy cars. And, um, and what's happened to that? I mean, there are obviously websites, and it's it's not true to say that people do not get attached to artists now. And in fact, in some respects, they get. Not long after this website started, we posted an article basically having a go at Ed Sheeran and uh, and singer songwriters, and are still getting tweets about it. Every other day, well, somebody sees that, and I'm really upset by it. <laughs> like, but, the, but that's a, but that's a different kind of engagement. That's, and I think that's what's fostered by social media in particular. That's engagement with, it's engagement with the artist, not the art. In that pre-internet, etc. Say there was a band you really liked. Like, who was a band I really liked in 1990? Say a band I really liked. The Cure. I really liked The Cure. I liked The Cure. But, so if I saw an interview with Robert Smith in a music magazine, I might buy that music magazine. I would take it home and I would read that interview. Mm-hmm. And that's pretty much all I hear from Robert Smith or about Robert Smith uh, until next time he gives an interview to a magazine that I read. Whereas now, if you... So what I would then do is obviously you go away and you listen to your Cure records. Mm-hmm. Whereas now, if you want to be engaged with the artist's life, you can do that as a full-time job. You know, you can do nothing else all day but re- you know, if the artist is big enough but read about them, look at videos of them, argue with other people about them. And I think in the midst of all that, I'm not really sure how much attention is actually getting paid to the music, including by some of the artists. You've taken the, I mean, the classic music journalist thing of people who suggest that music journalists are failed musicians <laughs> of starting a, a, a number of bands. Well, not a number... A couple. One really, and one other sort of musical project thing. It's, it's a fair point. You know, There's a thing always said about rock journalists that they're frustrated rock musicians. It's balls. Um, we're just not. And until I decided for reasons which had nothing to do with anything in the book to actually form a band at the age of... When was it? 2006. Anyway, comfortably in my mid-30s and I decided I was going to form a band... Up until the moment I decided I was going to do that, I honestly never once had any inkling of wanting to do it. I mean, when you see up close what life is like for a band like U2, say, you can see, yeah, okay, this looks like fun. 
you know, if I if I could just fill in a form and do this for a job, mm-hmm. totally. But that's that's not what happens to most musicians. Uh, for most musicians, and now more so than ever, it's it's hard. It's it's really really tough. And I, I have a, I have a great many friends who are musicians, certainly successful by the standards of most musicians, but and, and living the dream, in fact, by the standards of most musicians. People who can fill theatres in most big cities in the world, but they do, they do not at any level lead a life that I envy at all. It's it's tough and it, it, it is really, really hard. But it's 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 a different I, I will say that it has been um, I mean I've made I've made one album with my own band, The Blazing Zoos. We've nearly finished our second album. The other album to which I contributed, which was the North Sea Skulls with, with Luke Haynes and Cuttle Coughlin, I didn't really my contribution to the recording of it was to nip out every so often and, and get coffee for everybody because I, I merely recorded the spoken word interludes between the tracks and we recorded those in Luke's flat so at the at the actual studio I was really I, I was coffee guy basically um, but making the two albums with my band though we have had a grown up producer for both Mark Wallace who uh, most excitingly for me has produced records for the Go-Betweens and mm-hmm. Paul Kelly but has worked with everybody ever that has been instructive uh, if you've made a lot of your living passing judgment on other people's albums. I'm not saying it should be made compulsory, but it is, it is a useful and interesting thing to do to have a whack at making one of your own. You start to... You do end up listening to other albums quite differently because because I think until you've actually done that, I think there's a... It's, it's like with books as well, the, the, or any finished artefact. The thing is the thing, mm-hmm. and it's very hard to imagine it could have been any other thing because that's the thing. Mm-hmm. But when you actually make the record and you're involved in those endless, uncountable, often incredibly tedious decisions about whether the guitar should be a bit louder in that bit or whether we need an extra drum fill in that bit, you realise that every great record you listen to, all those songs you really love, they're all a collection of those decisions. And you just wonder if any one of those had been the wrong decision, would it have completely undone this record? Because you know, to, to make a genuinely great record, mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm certainly not accusing myself of having done so uh, yet anyway, a lot of stuff needs to go right, and a lot of stuff needs to not go wrong, and you need a lot, you need quite an intense concentration of people not making stupid decisions. Mm-hmm. And once you sort of experience that up close, then yeah, every completely perfect song does seem like even more of a miracle than it already did. And all of that must, I mean, that must feed then into your writing about music as well, subsequently? Um, well, yes and no. It does when you've got space which is and room to sort of think and flex a bit, which, unfortunately, these days you very often don't. There's only so much you can do with a 100-word album review, for example. Um, well, the empathy, at least, I mean. You, know, um, you, must, the more, you have more of an understanding of what it's like to create the stuff. Well, the, the empathy... Well, it's arguable whether that's a good thing uh, in a rock journalist, because one of the things that certainly appealed to me about Melody Maker when I was young was that that old school iconoclasm of the mm. British music press, which Melody Maker did rather pride itself on taking to extremes. I, I think in the book I say that the difference between the NME was and us was that the NME saw them themselves principally as cheerleaders, whereas we saw ourselves more as bouncers. You know, we decided who was good. Uh, and if we decided that you weren't up to it, then you were getting heaved down the stairs with, with no great ceremony. Uh, I, I think unless you are actually sociopathic, uh, age takes that out of you a little bit when you start to realise, well, you know, all someone's done here is made a bad pop record. Mm. No, I mean, really, am I going... To, and, you know, and then you realise, yeah, and people work hard on these and blah, blah, blah. And 
ideally you should get nicer as you get older. I think most people do. Because there is the thing about, you know, obviously, and this was the interesting thing about revisiting this period personally, is this is the period in your life at which you get to think you know everything. Mm -hmm. You're sort of... Yeah, especially your, your early mid twenties. You think you know everything, and then I think the rest of life is largely a process of understanding that no, you didn't. Uh, and in fact, the older you get, the the less you realise that you actually understand about anything. So, hopefully, that makes you a bit humbler and a bit more empathetic. But I do think that music journalism, which isn't really my problem anymore, does miss. And I think music itself suffers from the absence of that kind of. I'll dignify it with the word rigor. Uh, I mean, I, I did notice that there's been a real generational shift in that recently Luke Haynes, uh, who I just mentioned, and who does also write about music very well, uh, as indeed he writes great, great songs, but he reviewed for a website whose name I can't remember, but he reviewed Noel Gallagher's dreadful last solo record, um, gave it the thrashing it, it richly deserved, and it wasn't that people on social media were angry about it in the way that people used to write to us when they were angry that we'd written, we'd given a battering to their favourite band. Mm -hmm. People were just, they were just astonished. Uh, people just seemed genuinely surprised that this was allowed, that you could insult the work of, you know, a major artist. There did seem to be a certain amount of nervousness about reaction to it. People said, well, is that, is that permitted? Can, 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 you, can, can you do that? Well, you, I mean, you mentioned there, you know, the idea of, of rigour and... Certainly, again, you know, when I was reading the music press back in the day, you know, you had the impression that the people who were writing it were curating, that they knew what they were talking about, <laughs> and therefore you would... I'm, I'm glad you gave take, that impression. You would take the word. Well, I'm going to turn that around, because one of the things we said right at the beginning... One of the things you said right at the beginning of the interview was this, this idea that nowadays, you know, young people who are starting out in writing are not allowed those errors you know they're not allowed to to say something like out there and passionate and and upsetting without getting sort of torn down and and actually when you know when I think about it really I say you know it felt like everyone knew what they were what they were talking about but the music press to me seemed like like it was that like young people saying actually quite ridiculous bullshit a lot of the time well we 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 had I think we had the certain measure of youth, you know, your standard issue youthful fearlessness, uh, on top of which we had the arrogance which came from being provided with a fairly well-read platform uh, in which to parade it. And we did also have that... We, we, didn't, we didn't have that pressure of the instant response. Mm -hmm. And occasionally, you know, you would get someone writing into you saying, oh, you're even at the same gig. Um, but the thing is, if someone wanted to write in and tell you you were a wanker, which occasionally they did, they'd have to, you know, they'd have to find some paper, remember where the pen was, and they'd have to find an envelope, and who's ever got an envelope? And then so once I go to the shop, get an envelope, come back, write the letter, find out what Melody Maker's address is, and bugger, I've thrown the issue away, if I have to wait till next week. Wait till next week, ah, oh, there's the address, fine. Walk to the post office, stand in the queue. By the time someone gets to the front of that queue, most people just say, oh, Christ, what was I even upset about? So you basically only used to get letters from people who were really passionate and who basically wanted to write for Melody Maker or were mad, mm -hmm. not to put too fine a point on it. So, but you didn't get the instant response. And I think that, unless you are an absolutely dauntless sociopath, is daunting. I find it daunting. I've more than once... You know, you'll, you'll tap onto Twitter something that seems like a sort of amusing, whimsical pertinent aside to some discussion, and then just find yourself thinking, I can't be bothered dealing with the consequences mm -hmm. of that. And, you know, and as I was saying earlier, I've been doing this a long time, 
my interest in what other people think of my own opinions is is barely measurable. Um, so I think if you're a younger person who is probably still under the, the bluster and arrogance and fearlessness of youth somewhat anxious and fractured as young people tend to be, yeah, I can imagine that a certain amount, actually I imagine that a great deal of self-censorship, if not admitted or witting, does go on. Because I think I think everybody must have, you, you, I, I mean, I, I do catch myself doing it. You just think, is making this joke or expressing this opinion worth having to deal with what the consequences are going to be because the same people who well because you used to have to do all the stuff of finding the the paper in the envelope whereas now any idiot with a telephone can respond instantly Mm -hmm. right there um and i think that that i think has had an inhibiting effect on criticism uh, possibly, ironically, in the same way that criticism maybe had an inhibiting effect on... Actually, no, I don't think criticism had an inhibiting effect on music, so why do I think this has an inhibiting effect on criticism? Maybe this thought makes no sense at all. <laughs> That's a good point for us to finish, I think. I've been talking to Andrew Muller. We've been talking about his book, It's Too Late to Die Young Now, Misadventures in Rock and Roll. It's been out for ages, hasn't it? Um, it's it's been out in, How, in, this, in the UK. It's been out it? in Australia since 2013 and I believe is still available in all good bargain bins. It's been out in the UK since about uh, late-ish 2014, so it's still reasonably current. Uh, certainly available, uh, published by Feruli, so available exclusively online, so Amazon uh, would be the, the swiftest way to purchase it. Not out on ebook yet, but at least one of my other books is other titles available, etc. Andrew, thank you very much for telling me about it. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. The show is supported by 89up and hosted by Positive Internet. You can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. You can find old interviews, new journalism and more on our relaunched website, littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.